work with them throughout the summer so it's good to see you. And I'm looking for Faith. I don't know if I'll see her before we leave. I didn't expect her to be in here today. She knows this material. She's been trained on it. Well, welcome this morning, and I'll share just a little bit about who we are. And um, Mark, I appreciate you doing the slides when we're ready here. Thank you. Um, David and I have been involved in ministry for close to 50 years, and in the last probably 15, uh, I have become well acquainted with the world of trauma through study and writing. I've been a state trainer for the Ohio Child Welfare Training uh, Program. Do we have any foster adoptive parents in here? You would have gone through that training program probably at one point pre-service. And um, a number of years ago, um, 2013, I believe, we were invited to come on the staff of Back-to-Back Ministries. It's an international orphan care ministry that is, they have sites in eight countries. They asked us to come on board to train their staff on trauma-informed care. We had no idea what God was going to do with the material. And since then, uh, the material, uh, uh, now a piece of what you're getting today is part of a nine-module training curriculum that has, God has flown around the world. It's been in over 70 countries and translated into 10 languages. God's done an amazing thing. Uh, we went off the road with uh, back-to-back at COVID time, and right after COVID, our senior pastor at the English Church of the Nazarene asked, he said, you've been doing this around the world, why don't you do it here locally? So the vision for the Community Impact Center was born, and the Community Impact Center is part of um, our local church, but it, to my knowledge, and I've done the research on it, it's the only church in the country that has a trauma training center out of the local church. So I have a business card up here. Um, I have little, and I'll share it here in what those little cards are for those of you that have just come in. And um, we want to serve the church. And we had the privilege of going and training and staff in Mechanicsburg last summer and have continued that relationship with some of their staff members. So that's all about us for now. And we're going to talk about some important things today. Uh, in relationship to trauma. If you are interested in bringing this to your local church, uh, stop by us at the front and we can give you a little bit more information on how to contact us. Mm -hmm. All right. Good to be with you this morning. And uh, we've already prayed that the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth and set us free, not only in your life, but in the lives of those whom you serve. And so uh, we want to get started here. Uh, my name is David Schooler, a local pa- uh, pastor of a church, senior pastor for a number of years. And uh, as we always say, I wish I would have known this in that context because it helped me be even more successful. So we're going to share some principles this morning that uh, we believe will be helpful and healing. And the next one I have what we call the middle circle. And as you see in the bottom here, is a child or an adult, anybody, who's been through trauma, who's suffered somehow or another, and uh, the two kinds of wounds, the good things that should have happened did not happen, and the bad things that should not have happened did. And so it scrambles the brain, the belief system, the body, the biology and the behavior. All of that is scrambled in the context of trauma. Very, very important to understand that. And so therefore, it's showing up in their behavior, aggressive behavior, angry behavior, 
all kinds of negative aberrant behavior coming out of that, those experiences of trauma. And here's where we come in, where you come in is, those children, those adults who've been through that need resources to heal. We believe that God has resources to help us heal from what has happened to us in the past. Just a minute. Please raise your hand if you've not gotten a handout of the PowerPoint. Eat. Oh, wow. Do we have some left? We, I hope so. I made 90. So. Yeah, if not, you can pull you, it up on the fly. On the, on your yeah, all of this is on PowerPoint in the little packet you'll be getting in. This is a great uh, visual to teach in many, many contexts. I'm the kind of person who likes to see things in lines, circles, and arrows. And this is one we developed using uh, circles. A child, a person, anybody down here below uh, has gone through trauma and uh, he needs resources to heal. But the problem is he needs what we call a middle circle. That person who's aware of resources, competent, and can connect with the child or the person who needs help. And that's what we call the middle circle. And if that middle circle is not in place, then healing in all possibility, in all probability, will not happen. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning, the power of healing connections. There was a Harvard study several years ago on child development. And Harvard, development, Harvard uh, University came up with this discovery. They, they found that every child that ends up doing well in life as an adult can point back to at least one safe, present adult in his or her life. That's how powerful the connection in life is. Let me also share something with you that's just coming out. And they're finding that, uh, new research is finding that the number one health Problem. The issue that causes the most problem is what they call loneliness. Loneliness has become the number one health issue in our country because if we're not connected, we are we are in a state of loneliness, and that state of loneliness creates all kinds of mental, emotional, and physical problems. That's why connection is so vital on so many levels. And so we want to uh, talk about that this morning. And you are, and you are, I am, we are, middle circles. We were teaching this in Kyrgyzstan in Kenya. And in those trains, in those countries, we had people come up to me. I see this. This is great. I'm a middle circle. But they say to us, but I need, I need that too. I'm, I'm wounded as well. So we all need people in our lives that can help us heal. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Jamie. Yes, God Connection. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about God Connection this morning. And one of the principles we teach a lot is, and this is so key, before we can really correct, before we can really correct somebody, we must first connect with that person. We try to help somebody, correct somebody, make somebody do something, whatever, without first correcting or connecting it's going to fall on deaf And this is such a powerful principle in Scripture because when Jesus came, the first thing he did when he came with us and me, you, all of us, is he connected with us. And now he can deal with the issues in our life. God sent Jesus. He, Jesus is our middle circle. 
coming to us in our brokenness, connecting with us, and bringing us to help and healing. So, one of the things, I have a counseling ministry. One of the things I always ask, most usually ask, when I'm dealing with a person who's been through trauma is, did you have a middle circle in your life? Who was there when you're going through your trauma that helped you feel safe and feel okay? And most of the people point to somebody. It was a grandmother, it was a pastor, it was a coach, and uh, we were a much smaller group, uh, group, and we had more time, I would ask you, who was your middle circle? And who was your middle circle? Who was there when you needed somebody? I've had a few tragically say, as they think back on it, there was nobody. There was nobody. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Could you just one second, take 30 seconds and write on your handout who that middle circle was for you? We won't have time to ask everybody, but just write that down if you have a middle circle. In a perfect world, that would be a parent or a family member, but we don't live in a perfect world. And, uh, that's why what we do is so important. And we've heard around the world how important it is for anybody, somebody, who is safe, who is in a safe place, and what that person can do to have a person heal. It is so critical. So if you thought about your mental circle, we'd love to hear about it, but we don't have time. But my guess is, and my belief is, that you all, we all have somebody. In our life. For years and years, when we see somebody with aberrant behavior, behavior that's not healthy, we ask the question, what's wrong with him? As if the judge even asked us to, you know, uh, in some way be negative toward him. A better question is, what has happened to him? Bruce Perry just wrote a brand new book, about, it's been out about a year, it's a great book called, What Has Happened to You? So that very question is being asked in a context of helping people heal from their brokenness. So a better question would be not what's wrong with you, but what has happened to you. When I sit down with somebody in my counseling practice, I go there. Tell me your story. What has happened to you? Because what is happening right now for each and all of us has roots into what's gone on before. So we heal the present by dealing with the past. One of the things that, um, when I work with foster and adoptive parents that are just beginning a journey, or really anybody in ministry, we think love is going to be enough. That's going to fix everything. Well, there's a different way to look at it. And there's a scripture that's, um, because a lot of our kids, and we're going to talk about in just a minute, they, they deal with a lot of fear. Well, there's a scripture that says, perfect love casts out fear. That's 1 John 4.18. Well, I looked at it, I think, in the Message Bible, and it said, well-formed love casts out fear. I changed it just a little bit to well-informed love casts out fear. When I understand and look at a child from what's happened to them, and I learn the strategies to help that child, there's two things that we always share that, I, that really profoundly changed how, really how I look at everybody. The first is there's always meaning behind behavior. 
Those kids that come into your ministry on Sunday morning and they are throwing a fit, they didn't get up that morning and say, I'm going to come to Sunday school and throw a fit to my teacher. No, things happened on the way or happened before. There's always meaning behind behavior. The second one is from the work of Dr. Karen Kerbis. And um, I'm, I'm going to share her quote and then I'm going to share David's quote, which shortens it. Behavior is the language of children who have lost their voice. If children have learned that they cannot use their voice to express a need, they're going to tell you with their behavior. That's the best way. And he shortened it to, remember what you shortened it to? Behavior is vocabulary. Behavior is Uh, if a child goes to 
trauma, and there's no safe adult on duty, he can't run, he can't fight, so it goes into the third point, uh, option is dissociate or freeze, go inwardly. And the brain literally prepares that child for the pain and horror that's about to happen. And a lot of our kids live in that dissociated state. And uh, a safe person in a safe place over time can bring that child out and he can, he can regain his life. Uh, others, suppressive child boys have heard that before, protective strategies. The brain is designed to do many, many things. But in this context, there are two things that we want to talk about the brain. The brain is designed by God to help us develop, grow, mature, all that, and or keep us safe. But it cannot do both at the same time. And that's why kids who come from trauma, many, many times, if not most times, are developmentally behind because the brain's been busy. Okay. Some of our children may be as much as half their chronological age. If in the first five years they have experienced what we call cuts, chronic, and I'll repeat this, chronic, unpredictable, toxic stress. Our kids have marinated in toxic stress. I'll repeat that. Um, chronic, unpredictable, toxic and that changes, as David already mentioned, the body and the brain, even our biology. Some of the protective strategies are manipulation. Do you know any kids that are really good at manipulation? That's a protective strategy. Absolutely. It's about survival. It's about survival. Another um, uh, protective strategy is what we call triangulation. And that means they put two parents against each other or the parents against a school counselor or you in ministry. They've gotten the, the children's ministry pastor all upset with the parent, all of that. They're great at triangulation. Another huge one is control. Our kids are such control freaks because they've not controlled anything. They may even get upset because they can't, um, a parent makes them wear a certain pair of socks when they want to wear another pair of socks. So uh, manipulation, triangulation, control, <coughs> aggression toward themselves or others, or violence in some cases, in some um, severe cases, so. All the times when I'm working with somebody, an adult typically, and usually, so it's just eaten up with anger because of what has happened before, I say, we can get rid of the anger if you want to. And they say, yeah, absolutely, get rid of the anger. And then I ask them again, do you want to get rid of the anger? And I think about it and say, maybe I don't, because anger has become a protective strategy. And they feel like if they're not angry, then they are vulnerable again, and it's a real tricky thing to work through. Um, going through the list here, I need to serve, to concern the needs of others. They look like psychopaths, they don't seem to care about anybody else because they're stuck in their own uh, survival mode. Suppresses the conscience. We see a lot of lying and stealing. I give them lectures or sermons on uh, the sinfulness of those two activities. It doesn't matter to them. Lying is a fear-based behavior, typically, even in adults. They have learned to lie in order to survive, or to get needs met. Uh, looks like bad behavior, and just all thinking. Now, I would add to the, these uh, fear-based 
components, it also causes a lot of physical, emotional, and spiritual damage. Think about it. When we are, when our brain is stuck in fear, it's about fear and it's pumping hormones through our system. And chronically triggered like that causes a lot of problems. When you, how many of you know of children that have, um, from a traumatic history, if you know that much about them, have a problem with lying? Why do we lie? We lie, as David mentioned, to protect ourselves. I was at a conference and I asked that question of about 120 in the room when I asked that question. Lady in the back of the room stood up and said, I resent that. I have never lied, even in my childhood. I never lied. <laughs> what would you have said to her? Uh, yeah, anyway, I didn't say anything. And she meant it too. And she meant it. Oh man, I offended her because I said it. Some awareness is lacking perhaps. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe yeah, not. Well, yeah. Anyway, as David mentioned, I believe lying is a fear-based behavior. We did not mention that we were foster parents for eight years and adopted one of our foster sons who is at 16. He just turned 56. And I understand more about that fear-based behavior now than I did. I wish I would have known that because I would say, say things like, you like us after all we've done for you? No. It doesn't even compute because when you're in your fear brain, you have no access to your logical thinking, and no amount of morality and lecture will make a difference at that point. Not that you don't later on, but at that point. So the next slide says, chronic fear is like a schoolyard bully that uh, scares a child into behaving poorly. They may be on the way to your children's ministry on Sunday morning, then there may be something that happens in the car that triggers fear. So they get to your ministry in, uh, in bad behavior already, and you can tell. I have a little story about bringing you the football, and uh, the audio doesn't play, but I will tell you the story. We had the privilege of speaking at a church in Greenville, South Carolina. North Carolina. I always ask you that, and I never I remember. Never South Carolina? South Carolina. Thank you. I should get that straight after all these years. Yep. That it was a Sunday morning, and they had a large children's ministry, probably like this church does here. So we had two sessions, and it was required for them to come. So the first class at 8 o'clock in the morning. There was a group probably of 30 or 40. And, but there was a gentleman in the back of the room. And about midway into our one hour, what we have with you, one hour, I noticed he was texting on his phone. And I thought, hmm. He's a hostage. He doesn't want to be here, and he's putting in the time. Um, so anyway, I uh, after the class, Ryan came up to me. He said, this one hour has changed my life. I said, oh, my goodness. I've never had anybody say that. And he said, let me tell you. We have a little fellow, Matt, that comes a lot on Sundays, and I'm glad the Sundays he doesn't show up. Now, be honest. Are there kids, are you glad the Sundays they don't show up? Anyway, he said, he's in our room about 10 minutes, and then he becomes dysregulated. That's a new word for me. I've never heard that word. In other words, it's like a floor of the meltdown. And I basically took him out of the class and have him sit out in the hall. But I learned something today that I need to connect with him, not disconnect with him. 
And so he said, I know Matt loves football. So if he comes today, what I was doing on my phone was texting my wife to bring the football. Because if he becomes dysregulated, Matt and I are going to go out and throw the football. I'm going to connect with him, help him to calm down because of the physical activity. And, you know, he was leaving the room, and I thought, man, you weren't connected. You weren't texting your wife to bring the football. You were texting your wife to change your life. And that's what happened with Matt um, and this little guy. So the principle of connecting Whatever ways we can find ways to connect with our kids, even when they walk in in the morning and say, oh, cool, both of you out, we're having the same color today. Or, um, I heard you watched the movie last night that I watched. Finding ways that we can match and connect with kids. There is a strategy that we train in our workshop, and it's, um, uh, actually we're going to talk about three strategies here, but the first one is connecting not disconnecting. And so when we look at the next slide, Mark, thank you. Um, I love this. Again, how many foster, adoptive, or kinship parents do we have in here? A number of them, that's awesome. I think this is true, it was true for us. And what we have here is a negative reaction cycle. So the child has, our teen has a need. They let us know by their bad or negative behavior. And so instead of responding to what, and going, trying to find out what the need is, we react and we get caught in this negative reaction cycle of only responding to a behavior. I was asked by an adoption agency in Dayton, they had a family that had um, two foster children that the public agency had just gotten custody of. And the agency wanted this family to adopt both kids, and the family said, well, we'll adopt the nine-year-old boy, but we're not adopting the eight-year-old little girl. And so they called me and said, would you talk them into it? I said, I don't talk anybody into anything, but I will meet with them. So I met with them. I remember it was a snowy evening, December, probably about six years ago. Uh, we sat at a Bob Evans. I listened to their story for about an hour, and then I said to the mom, it looks like you are caught in this negative reaction cycle. And she said, you are so right. She cannot even drink a glass of milk without my commenting that you're slurping. Have you ever been caught in just responding to behavior responding? Remember, behavior expresses a need. There's always meaning behind behavior. And she said, okay, so I've identified the problem. How do I get out of it? And I shared with her a quote that um, there is a correlation between my emotional connection to a child and my tolerance of their behavior. Now think about a child you have in your home or a child you have in ministry that you don't feel a good connection to. Second part of that question is think about your um, tolerance of their behavior in ministry. You go right to the behavior, you go right to the behavior, and so what she said after I shared this quote was, are you telling me I'm going to have to work on my connection to her when I don't want to? I said, if you want to go forward with adoption of this little fellow, we need to work on this. So I mentored her. She came to our um, three-day training on all of this. And um, 
within six months, they made a decision about those kids because she identified what her problem was. A lot of it was coming out of her own history. And so this is a powerful concept. I love, I'll back up, Mark, if you could, please. Um, correlation between my emotional connection to a child and my tolerance of resistance. Great, next question. Um, the question here, here is, does a child or teen or an adult come to mind that feeling connected to is very, very difficult. I think we all have these people, and uh, we really need to stop and uh, think about that. If I may just share a real quick story from Armenia. We were teaching this program, this material in Armenia, and in our Armenian class, there was a pastor called, his name is Pastor Raphael. It was in his church that we were training, and he said, uh, may I share something? Of course, we always say, please. And uh, we would do that today if we had more time. We'd love to hear your story. But he said, I said, sure, come on up, Pastor. And he said, there is in this community, this little village has been through the Soviet Union, been through Nazism, and just recently had a horrible earthquake, a horrible environment there, difficult environment. But there was in this community a boy that was just wild as he could be. He would steal, he would lie, he would do all kinds of things. And everybody beat him up. They took him out of town. He'd always find his way back. Just on everything they did, everything they tried, failed. Only made it worse. One of the policemen said, Let's call Pastor Raphael. This is the story he's telling me. Let's call Pastor Raphael and see if he could help. And uh, Pastor Raphael said, Yeah, sure, bring him to me. So at one at a time, they brought the boy in, escorted by two police, uh, police from each side. And Pastor Raphael did four things to change his trajectory. Change the direction of his life. He did four things. They were not sermons or great lectures. They were four simple things. This is his story. Whenever they brought him in, the first thing he did was he got out from behind his desk and remove all barriers to disconnect or remove all barriers to connect. When someone comes to see me, I don't sit behind the desk. I sit right in front of him. I call it my two-chair university. I sit in one chair they sit in the other. He removed the barrier to connection. Then he looked in, in the eye, eye contact, and said to the boy, I see you. Then he smiled at him. And I approve of you was the message he sent. He removed the barrier, looked him in the eye, smiled, and the fourth thing he did was he nodded and nodding at him, told the boy that he was welcome in this place. And those four things did something in that boy's life that changed it that nothing else could do, which was nothing more than power of connection. And we followed up about a year ago, maybe. Mm -hmm. About a year ago, we called Pastor Raphael in Armenian. How's the boy doing? Well, he's doing very well. He's not totally healthy yet, of course. But he's married serving in the church, born-again believer in Jesus, all those things are those four things connecting before we correct. That's incredible. Yeah, and anybody can do that. Yes. Um, you know, kids that have been through trauma are hyper-vigilant about body language. They are on alert. They can often misinterpret your body language, but it, it can be um, 
a great signal to them. So this body language that he received from Dr. Uh, from uh, Pastor Raphael was an absolutely incredible. So we encourage you to keep the child or teen on your mind um, as we go through the rest of uh, this morning. And uh, we are going to leave time for questions, about 12, 15. They've asked us to leave time for questions and some other things. So the next thing is not an activity we're going to do, um, but this is something you can do in your ministry. If you're having a staff meeting and you're, you're talking about a difficult child that you have in your ministry. This is about looking about, are we disconnecting from our kids? Or are we connecting with our kids? And you could, uh, the directions are here. You just draw uh, three columns. You have identified the misbehavior. Um, the second, then you look at what have been my disconnecting responses. Maybe I have sent that child out of the room. Um, and that's been my disconnecting response. So what would be a connecting response? If you have the privilege of having more than one person in your Sunday school class, you have someone connect with them. Or maybe you can have a class mentor who's willing to really connect with that difficult child every Sunday and build that relationship. But finding someone uh, or you as a teacher um, to connect. And David mentioned this is for adults as well. Beautiful story. I have a friend by the name of Kim Bado who has worked in Crossroads Ministry down in Cincinnati for years. They've been trauma-informed. They've done the trauma training with us. And Louie, five-year-old Louie, came one Sunday to church. And his mom dropped him off in Sunday school. Within five minutes, little Louie was swearing at words I would not repeat in here, throwing <laughs> chairs. The behavior was unbelievable. And so Kim took him out in the hall, and she stayed with him. Said, Louie, let you and I go get acquainted. So she and Louie, there was enough adults in there, went out in the hall. So she spent the hour just out in the hall, coloring with Louie and getting to know little Louie. And then, after church, saw his mom come around the corner, and she just, oh, Louie's out in the hall again. And um, the first thing that Kim said with her mom was, I have so enjoyed getting to know Louie. That was a connecting word. The mom kind of relaxed a little bit. And Louie had calmed down by then. said, Louie, can you go in the class and just kind of color with the friend? You know, she took him and gave him a little bit of direction. And the mom took a little walk. She said to her mom, let's take a walk. The next question she asked her, what does Louie need to succeed in our ministry? What a great question to ask a parent with a difficult child. What does Louie need? And the mom um, began to share Louie's story. Uh, Louie witnessed the, um, literally, murder of his father when he was three. They've been in incredible trauma, move after move, evict, all of that. She's finally getting her life together. But the mom said, we've been kicked out of every church I've tried to go to because of Louie's behavior. Well, Kim said, it's not going to happen here. And they mentored the mom. Louie got better. That mom became a born-again believer and was dead. Sir, I don't know if she's still today. As a year and a half ago, she was serving on the ministry at Crossroads in the media area. So connecting with a parent of a difficult child is as important as checking, uh, connecting with a child. Can save the trajectory of the family. So think about our, are we disconnecting? Are we connecting? And if we don't know how to connect, brainstorm ways to connect with the parents and the kids. Real quickly, a story by Bruce Perry. 
he wrote a book called The Boy That Was Raised as a Dog. He, his practice is, dealing, is, is working with kids who've been through trauma and all the brokenness that they bring to his office. And he talks about in his book, a little girl named Tina, and they brought, Tina's been through more stuff in five years than all of us will probably uh, do in a lifetime. And they brought Tina in to see him. And uh, when Tina came in with her caregiver, uh, Tina stood up and went over and sat on Dr. Bruce Perry, MD, PhD, on his lap and began to unzip, unzip it. And that's what her, that's what she'd been told and that's what she'd been taught. This is what men want, this is what you do to be okay with in, in with relationship with men. Bruce Perry, in his wisdom, didn't push her away, didn't shame her, didn't slap her or push her down, whatever. He said to her, Tina, let you and me go over here and cover. PhD, MD, sitting over here with a five-year-old girl, cover. And there were a number of sessions, that's all they did was they just sat and colored. And what was he doing? He, he was teaching her something other than what she'd been taught, and he was connecting to her heart. And now, he follow, he's following through. She's doing very well. We must correct, or connect, before we correct. And Jesus did that. Sure. Grace and truth. Extended grace, and then truth. And how do we connect? Well, there are many ways, and we often talk about and ask for input from the crowd. But one of those is you see on that in power of praise. Uh, I Those of you who have lived without the praise of someone, you know how empty, how hurtful that is. And those of you who have been praised and, and celebrated, you know how that feels. And so one of the best ways we can do uh, to help con to connect with another person is just to praise them. And kids who come from hard places have been told what's wrong with them, you know, what they did wrong, whatever. But praise is a very powerful thing. Not only because there is power in our words. Life and death is in our words, ladies and gentlemen. It's true. But I want to tell you something else that happens when we praise somebody. Uh, there is in each of us what they call a vagus nervous system. The vagus nervous system is tied to and attached to most of the major organs in the body. And we praise somebody and do what Dr. Raphael did, the thought that the, the uh, non-verbals, when we praise people and, and communicate approval and acceptance, I see you, the vagus nervous system actually goes down into action and they feel it, literally feel it. Probably you felt it too. And that's true and it is. Then the opposite is true. When we criticize somebody or put them down or whatever, the vagus nervous system responds in a negative way. That's how powerful praise is and how important it is to uh, connect. And you think about parents showing up um, at Sunday school, after Sunday school or after children's ministry, and they know they have a troubled kid. They are prepared for you to tell them all the negative behavior stuff you've endured through the ministry. And I've, um, a friend of mine suggested we do this. Dave and I just finished a book for Focus on the Family. It won't be out for about another year, but it's targeted in church ministry. 
on working with traumatized kids. But in that book, my friend Cindy Lee gave me some suggestions. And, she's, and I do this now. I have the privilege of having children's ministry every six weeks. And I love being in there. After 30 years of not working with children, I'm back in working with children, and I absolutely love it. But what I do every Sunday, and we have a small church, so we have 20 kids. I can do this with 20 kids. But if you train your staff to do this, no child leaves that Sunday school class when I'm there without hearing a character phrase at the door. They have to tell me one thing they learned, and they all repeat the same thing because they heard what the first person said. But then, <laughs> but then I give them a character phrase in front of their parents. Like Johnny was so helpful to Susie today. She spilled her crayons. Even without asking Johnny, he got down and helped her. So I look for character phrases, that, and they say it in front of their parents. Parents already know the behavior issue. We don't need to tell them that. But parents need to hear, you found something in my child that maybe I didn't even see myself. We were in uh, Branson. We pastored in Branson, first pastor. It was in Branson, Missouri. We went back several years ago, and uh, we were eating in the farmhouse restaurant downtown Branson. And a young lady in her 20s came up to me, and she said, are you pastor school? And I said, yes. I looked up at her, and I didn't recognize her. She said, you don't know me, but uh, you changed my life. And I said, oh, wow. And I long since have learned, it's not my great friend or wisdom or whatever, that does the work of simple things that we are given to do in a moment of time that can change so much. And I said, well, tell me your story. What changed your life? And she said, when I came to church with my grandmother, Ruby Hunt, whom I remember well, but she, when she came, she was about five or six years old, and uh, here's what I did, what she told me. When I came in with my grandmother, you got down on your knee and noticed my new shoes. And I went on and on with our new black leather patent shoes that were very important to her, and little socks and damascus. And then she said, the next time I came to church, you remember my name. That, my friends, is what she told me changed her life. She was seen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was seen, acknowledged, valued in very simple ways. And sometimes pastors are so busy doing something, we cannot notice these things. We need to notice these things and do them. Power of Presence is another one. There's a book called The Power of Showing Up. And so many kids who come from hard places have been promised, I'll be there, I'll take you here, I'll take you there, we'll do this, we'll do that. But nobody shows up. And it's a wound so deep. But the power of presence is so powerful. And uh, so we just need to be men and women of character and show up. But presence, there are two levels of presence, by the way. In Hebrews, Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never leave you nor forsake you. We've been some dark places, but he's been there with us. The second, the second level of presence is one another. You know there's almost 90, almost 90 one another statements of scripture? That's horizontal one another connecting to one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another, correcting one another, all there. 91 others in Scripture, which is telling me in the, in, the, in the mind of God, we are to connect with one another and, and be present. Ever go to a church and nobody saw you? Nobody, thank you for coming. Nobody even noticed you, you were there. It's very painful. Be present. And here we go to the next one. 
How do you feel in his presence? Uh, how do you feel in his presence? One of the things I do in my own mind is I just sit in my chair in my little office. I just sit quietly and uh, experience his presence. And I ask him questions. Sometimes he'll give you a specific answer. Sometimes he won't necessarily, but I'm always aware of his presence. The presence of God in the world we live in now is so Great. The next one, and a little kind of goes along with praise, the power of approval. Some of our kids never hear that they are approved at. Kids from um, hard places really have a really difficult with their own self-esteem. They don't feel that they're worth anything. A child who's been abused believes they're not loved. A child who's been neglected believes he doesn't even exist, because if I existed, you would take care of me. Those are pretty deep core beliefs. So hearing around the power of approval, we approve. Maybe it's a small thing you have to really dig for, to look for, to approve. A very, very important. May I say something? Yes. I'm meeting presently with a 23-year-old college student. She's absolutely brilliant uh, academically, and but she's broken emotionally, and I'm meeting with her. And she was raised in a home that everything she did was not enough, wasn't done well. It, she was never approved. Their approval helps us understand that what I'm doing is good, is right, is proper. But if we don't get approval, that feedback, we don't know what we're doing. Am I okay? Am I okay? And this is a Christian home. They've grown up in the oh, church. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the family group. Yeah. So the next one is the power of individual attention. In our research for our book, and um, I discovered a term I had never heard before. It's called distracted parenting. Distracted parenting. If you Google it, you will find articles now on distracted parenting. What is the distraction? This. And there's incredible research about what is happening emotionally, socially, and cognitively, particularly with toddlers. When they look up and their mom is on the phone. I saw a picture of a woman who was breastfeeding and she had a phone. Missing that opportunity to look into the precious eyes of her newborn. She was on the phone. So we, I always challenge parents when I'm teaching and working with them. Do a, do a self-awareness. How much do your kids see you on this device? This has become a, what's a word for this? Related? Oh, yeah. What they have found is that you're raising a, a generation of kids with relational poverty. Just by this simple thing. So, the power of individual attention, the power of repairing ruptures. No one of us is perfect in relationship with kids in ministry or in our home, but the power of repairing ruptures. Some days we have really bad days and we blow it. And if we want to connect with our kids, we really want to repair those ruptures. We were training in, in Kyrgyzstan, a little country near China. We lived there off and on for um, 2008 to 2013. And we were training orphanage caregivers, and obviously through a translator. And there was one woman um, who I asked her, what did you learn today? And uh, as they were leaving, she said, I'm really can be really harsh with some of these kids. 
Somebody said that every good night. But she said, now before I leave at the end of every day, I'm going to ask myself, do I need to go back and repair a relationship? You might be thinking of a relationship you do need to go back. There might be a way back that you need to repair those relationships. But if we want to build connection with any anybody, we have to repair the relationships. So I would like you to leave here, and I'm going to come down the floor to Alan, and we can take a couple of questions here, and I want to share some things with you. But um, thinking about how to create intentional connections throughout the day uh, that you have with your kids. One of the things that um, my friend Cindy Lee said that she does after the end of her um, Sunday ministry at Sunday night, she thinks back, did I connect with every kid that I was placing in front of me today? Now, some of you have huge, large ministries, and that's maybe impossible. But you can set a goal. I'm going to connect with the same kids that I think is very blessing. Think about making those Resentment and rebellion. Rules plus regulations minus a relationship will turn into uh, resentment and rebellion. And I cannot tell you how many times I've seen that. Yes, thank you. 
R plus R minus R equals R and R. This is a great thing for churches, by the way. and rebellion. When the relationship is absent, you're not doing much good. Matter of fact, you're probably doing more harm than good. Maintain the relationship at all costs, no matter what. And, um, quite, yes, ma'am. I've shared that around the world, and every time I do, oh, yeah, it is about connection. Amen. Okay, just a couple things. Um, if you have uh, questions, we'll stay up here up front. Um, but is there any one or two burning questions that I can answer, and then got a couple of things to share? Now, can you use your outside voice like you're yelling at the